Podcast 10. Since the dawn of history, man's goal has been to create a society free from drudgery, hunger, and disease. Not only for himself, but as a legacy to pass on to his children. But only after the founding of our free society was the atmosphere created in which he could reach his goal. He worked and planned, built and innovated and grew. Eventually, he was able to provide not only the necessities of life for himself and his children, but he could dream of acquiring some of the luxuries as well. Has man's dream of his children's future ended in a nightmare? Salutations, dear citizens, as we peer into the new fund order to discover the immutable truth for asset management and wealth managers. The lowdown from the dark side, the frontier and the fringe of asset management and fund research. A podcast for wealth managers, fund selectors, distributors and investors, bringing to you the People's Republic podcast of finance, in association with my sponsor, Allianz Global Investors, capturing the latest market news, views and interviews with leading minds in our industry. Allianz Global Investors is one of the world's leading active managers. And in these strange pandemic lockdown times, rest assured that all guests are calling in remotely. So Clive, I want to explore your zen about fund allocation, I guess, finance generally, and specifically your mindfulness and unique views on environmental social governance. Um, welcome to the New Fund Order. JB, thank you so much for inviting me. Um, yes, zen and the art of investment management, there's, uh, there's quite a lot of ground to cover there. I have to pick on Robert Persig. It was, it was the book that got me into into motorcycling i read it when i was at um uh, university and of course it's it's so much more than you know frankly riding a, a motorbike the motorbike is the metaphor i guess for for life and how you conduct yourself but uh Persig talked about this idea of laws of nature as human i guess inventions like ghosts laws of logic of mathematics are in many ways also human inventions that is the whole blessed thing in finance? Is it just one big human invention? I, I have to say, I, I take um, I take exception to his um, observation that laws of nature are human inventions. I think that's that's uh, human nature um, thinking it can actually control nature when, of course, it can't. But uh, aside from that, the laws of logic. Um, I mean, the, the, the extraordinary thing about the laws of logic is that if you have an argument uh, for something, logically, you can also make the the opposite case. So this is a this is a big problem with logic. You know, you can be for something and against something at exactly the same time for very good valid reasons. It's a it's a very different difficult dilemma for the for the the mind to actually work out. And we'll probably talk about this later. But it's the mind is the problem that we have. The mind is a fantastic analytical tool. Give it a balance sheet, you know, spreadsheets, data. It'll crunch through that and it'll look at it and come up with an answer. But it's not actually the mind that makes the decisions. Um, but we can talk about that sort of further down the page, if you like. 
Sure. Well, let's let's pick on another uh, human construct. Uh, like I say, we might get back into laws of nature as well, but let's talk about, I guess, environmental social governance. And if it is also a construct, an invention of the mind, how does that affect how we approach ESG as humans? It, I, I think the whole ESG debate is is very is difficult. It's become you know topic du jour. Everybody's got an ESG strategy, um, but I think at the end of the day, or your starting point should be yourself, not you know, not what's going on within the fund management industry. If you have a, you know, a credible personal ESG policy, then I think that's, that's, that's where you start. There, there are so many, there are so many different opinions on ESG. And I think it's one of the problems I have is that, and in fact, one of the observations you've made is that, you know, the regulator is now getting involved in defining what ESG is. What on earth is the regulator doing telling us what ESG is? And equally, the, you know, the Bank of England and our climate change, climate control experts, um, we have too much regulation, far too much regulation. And particularly on ESG, I think this is a, a, a very personal matter. I think it requires a lot of discussion with your clients in particular. Very often, they, I don't think they fully appreciate that you know, the recent performance of ESG funds has pretty much been down to the fact that they're, they're, they're growth funds. And growth has done extremely well, as we know. And I think it's an important question you need to ask your client. You know, do, are you really an ESG? You know, do you really want funds that espouse all these values? Or are you just riding on the back of the performance because it's been good? Because this, unfortunately, is one of the other ways it gets marketed. You know, look at look at me, ESG. Oh, and by the way, the funds performed very well over the last three years. How much do you want? Um, I think that's probably coming at it from, from the wrong way around. You know, a lot of intellectual resource, right, has been put into coming up with meta-studies that prove that ESG doesn't hurt the, the, the returns back to the investor. And in, in many studies, they will claim that actually it boosts returns. And I think that's partly, as you say, to make the hard sell, partly to force it through let's say, legacy uh, governance structures that are, are very much designed around, you know, conventional risk return thinking. And it feels like that's it's sort of been bludgeoned through through the system to some degree. No, I'd agree with that. Um, I, I don't agree that, you know, performance will not be affected. It will. It's, it's like any other factor. Um, they don't all work all the time. Um, and you have to be aware of that. Uh, you know, I go back a long way, as you know. So I've seen, you know, I've seen the birth of ethical investing and it, all its various transmogrifications. And now we're at ESG. And I, I, I've seen it all happen before. Uh, ESG ethical investing tends to happen or tends to be flavour of the month when markets have had a good run um, right. because they are you know, very much growth orientated. They are also tend to be small small cap orientated and they tend to be traits that kick in at the end of a end of a bull run so i think you know caveat emptor at the moment yes esg for a lot of reasons is is something that is beneficial to all of us if it's done properly so i'm not decrying esg at all but i'm just saying from an investment perspective you need to be aware that it is just one of many factors and it it won't always um, be the best best solution for your for your portfolio given whatever outlook you may happen to have it's interesting isn't it that you know i think finance media needs to take um, a lot of responsibility i think on this as well when i think back to the mid-2000s clive you know issues such as climate change sustainability ethical investing they were there as well but the mainstream finance media didn't want to talk about them right then 
that point, you'll recall, that the, the golden egg was collateralization. It was about, let's take the debt model and, and do some weird and fantastical things. All you nice climate and ethical people, can you just go to the back of the room because we've got some really serious stuff to deal with here, <laughs> you know? But 10 years in a bull market, you know, we're, we're, we're saying that this is the new golden egg as far as I, as I can see it. And, you know, absolutely we should be tackling many of the, many of these issues. Do you think choice has become the ally of greenwashing and I guess the enemy of a, of a clearer path? Yeah, I, I, as I said earlier, I think now that we've got the regulator defining what, you know, what the ESG criteria are, as I said earlier, it, it, it's, it, it's far more of an individual base. You can't, you can't have one rule to, to bind them all, if you like. It's really, really very difficult to do. Uh, but of course, you know, it, it's got a lot more momentum behind it that, than it's had on previous occasions. Um, you know, the whole green, clean environment movement, uh, one way or the other, has got a lot more impetus behind it. So the industry feels obliged to embrace ESG, but I don't. I think it's still struggling to work out exactly how it how it then gets that message over to the to the clients um, you know you have you know very large companies with huge ESG departments uh, and then you find that they're buying companies like well they're buying oil companies and mining companies which for some of your clients that is an absolute no-no now if you are in the camp where you're saying well okay well BP are trying to be a green company yeah okay we'll give them some credit for that and maybe that's okay to have it in the portfolio but you come back at the end of the day to the end investor who will have very different views on what actually ESG is. And just to make up a blanket set of rules, uh, I don't see how you can do that. It's, you know, it's it's kind of, you know, know your client or, you know, interrogate your client. What What is important for you, Mr. Client? Um, and then maybe go back to the fund industry and say, right, you know, here are the, you know, we've got different shades of ESG. You know, are you rapidly ESG? Or are you kind of, you know, on the edges? It's nice, but, you know, I don't want to miss an opportunity in a particular field. Um, I would highlight something as bizarre as the uh, the coal mine in Durham that was not allowed to go ahead. Right. Because coal is coal, and that's it. And no discussion, coal is lethal, deadly. Um, this is metallurgical coal, which we need to make, you know, high-grade steel for all sorts of high-tech industries. And so that... You know, we can't do that now. So what do we do? We could now import it from China. So A, it's got to be shipped from China. B, the, the pollution in China is is vast. They've, they've actually agreed that they will start reducing their carbon emissions, not now, but by 2030, which means between now and 2030, they're actually going to go up. Um, and yet we're importing steel from, we're importing steel from China rather than allowing a, you know, coal mine to be open in Durham, jobs for the boys up north, um, and very clean burning coal. Yeah, I rest my case on that one. I do cringe a little bit at some of the pontification, perhaps from the US, in as much as, you know, for the last, let's be honest, for the last four years, what have you been doing? But as you know, anytime the political class start making decisions, it sends those uh, Orwellian chills up my spine. But you noted to me earlier this idea of ESG credentials, uh, this idea again of, understanding yourself before trying to impose on others and that's definitely as we're as we're saying that's not what we're seeing right now we can see that frankly contrarian opinion on this is quickly squashed on social media and and on the forums does that indicate that the industry's view of ESG has now reached a level of fanaticism I, I think 
I think the answer, the answer to that is yes, simply. You know, contrary opinion these days, you know, if, if, you, don't, if you don't agree with the uh, alleged mainstream view, the settled science, um, then you are a contrarian, you're a conspiracy theorist, and you will get shot down. Mm. Um, I, I know that from acquaintances of mine, exactly that's happened to them. Um, I think the problem with any contrary opinion, or, or, or the problem with most businesses, investment or otherwise, is that you tend to leave part of you at the door. You don't bring the whole JB or the whole Clive Hale into the room because you know that there are going to be some things that you have opinions on that don't agree with the mainstream and are not uh, not generally accepted. They're not part of the, the common narrative. Now I realise so, where I'm going wrong. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. But then taking that, I mean, you you, you said about this, um, you know, kind of one standard to rule them all, which is actually quite token. And uh, that got me thinking on that as well. Poor, you know, fund selectors in the room who have been selecting funds for, you know, maybe five, 10 years, 20 years plus, who are charged to balance all factors, um, not just the ranking of ESG factors. And it feels now that many selectors are put into a corner where they have to put those ESG factors above above all else, when you know that the consequences of that could be quite dire. Um, was the imposition of ESG into that balance necessary, or could we have found a, a, a different way of doing things? I, I think I think we should we should find a different way of doing things. Um, as I said earlier, ESG is a very personal um, personal thing. Every investor is going to have a slightly different view on it. And as you say, we've got so many factors to look at these days. Um, you know, we, we need another one like a hole in the head, quite honestly. Um, and ESG, I mean, I mean, the way I've looked at ESG is that I, I'm kind of surprised that uh, companies all of a sudden have found that they need an ESG policy. Uh, I'm, I'm really quite surprised they haven't always had one. I mean, a very good friend of mine, um, Gary Greenberg, uh, who, who a lot of you will know uh, as head of emerging markets at, at uh, Hermes or Federated Hermes, as they call themselves now, he's... He's, he's actually a, a, he's a Buddhist. He's been, in fact, when he left school, um, he went to the Far East and he studied Buddhism under all sorts of teachers, including the Dalai Lama. Uh, and it wasn't until his sort of mid-30s he got into investment management. And he, uh, he, he found Hermes, fortunately for him, because he worked for the big, you know, the big Wall Street investment banks who are, you know, about as ESG friendly as, as a, something I won't mention. Um, but, you know, Hermes were uh, very early into uh, the sort of ethical investing um, ESG syndrome. So he found a, he found a natural home. And if I, I, I will blow his trumpet, he's he's written a, a wonderful piece, which is called the Zen Zen and the Art of Investment Management. But yeah, in answer to your question, I, I don't you know ESG. I think we have to we can't we can't define it absolutely for everyone for every case for every fund. We just I think have to be aware that our fund managers are looking seriously at you know, the main principles and espouse to us when we're certainly when we're doing the through the fund selection process, you know, give us ideas of companies that they've bought because of their ESG credentials and companies that have failed the, the test and the reasons why. And that will then give you a better flavour. You'll then be able to kind of get the feeling of just how genuine this manager is when he's looking at ESG. Does he really believe it? Is it part of his credo or is he just following the company line? And if you like, it's, it's greenwashing. It's tick, it's tick this box. That 
box ticking, um, no, I, I, I'm very much against that. So is the regulators, but of course they make us tick boxes all day long. Okay, well, we've left we've left ESG in our dust by the, the side of the road, Clive. We, we, we'll continue our journey. And I was, again, picking up, I guess, Perzig, you know, he talked about the value of knowing the mechanics of, of a motorcycle, and, and, and absolutely that is true. And I felt that there was maybe a metaphor here for selecting funds as well, understanding how they work, you know, beneath the marketing. You know, when a fund breaks... Um, how much are you enthused to get in there, um, remove the plugs and, and try to fix it rather than just buy a new fund? Is there a, a bit of a problem in our industry in, in churning and in switching that you know fund selectors are sort of jumping from one fund to the next when there's the, the hint of a problem? What's your advice to, to fellow fund selectors when a problem does arise? If it's a question of you know a fund, you know, a stock's gone gone horribly wrong, then and it, you know, it's had a, a significant impact on performance. Then I think you know you do want to go in and you know ask all the right questions. You know what actually happened? What was? Why did you buy the stock in the first place? What were the reasons for buying it? Did this fit in with your your yes your fund selection process? What what failed? You know, was it fraud? Was it just bad luck? You know, they ran off with the money. Should you have known that they? You know, if you go into a meeting with, uh, with a company, with a fund manager or with a you know, company director, you know, part of the, the sort of zen, if you like, of, of understanding what's going on is um, you may mentally be sold a very good picture, uh, but does it actually feel right? Um, so, yeah, you, you, you need to go in and have a look. And if it's, if it's something that is explainable, and that you can determine that the process is not broken, then fine. I wouldn't necessarily be looking to change a fund on that basis. If it's something more fundamental, um, where there have been you know, compliance issues, shall we say, then I think you you don't really have an awful lot of choice. You know, the regulator, rightly or wrongly, will have made a decision, um, and you you can't really. There's not a lot you can do about that sort of thing. Well, I was just going to say, I think, you know, we've probably both seen the sort of the evolution, I guess, of due diligence, you know, in our time. And one of the problems, I think, with both operational and, and investment due diligence is one, regulation tends to be iterative and two, due diligence tends to be iterative. So the due diligence process just gets larger and larger and larger. And of course, when you're looking at those mid and larger sized players, their operations are complex because they have so many people involved in their in their process. Whereas you go to a boutique, you're probably looking for a much wider gamut of answers from the lead manager because they should understand how much of those things are operating within their, their own fund. But when you go to those larger players, you know you might have to speak to, obviously, to the portfolio team, yes, but you've got to go speak to the risk team, the compliance team. You need to understand their pre- and post-trade compliance. You know, was there, there's so many other functions that suddenly you've got to, um, you know, get involved in. I wonder if we have confused volume of due diligence with quality of due diligence. Almost certainly. Um, almost certainly. I mean, the larger... You know, the larger fund groups will often make a play of the fact that they have a risk management team, they have a compliance team, they have a this team or that team and every other team. And I'm forever want of explaining to them that the size of the team has no relationship to the performance of the fund. Very often it's, it's the other way around. Um, you know, the larger the team, you know, the less successful the, the fund is. Now, whether that's because the fund's been constrained by... Risk controls that a smaller manager might be prepared to take, um, 
or an overly aggressive compliance seat. I don't know. But I, you know, our job hasn't got any easier. I mean, you know, 30 odd years ago when I started looking at funds, you know, there were only about about a dozen people doing it. Of course, it's even harder these days. Well, it's certainly been harder um, over the last year or so because we haven't been able to sit in front of fund managers in quite the same way. You know, you can have a Zoom meeting and see some, probably not all of the body language, but actually sitting face to face with a fund manager and looking him in the eyes is, is vitally important. And you will learn eventually, you know, you'll pick up, you know, the signs and the signals of, you know, who's telling you the, telling you the right stuff. And a lot of that is down to listening to, listening to your own reactions, listening to your own body. You know, how does that response actually feel to you? You know, don't turn the sort of mind games off up the top. You know, how does that feel? Um, and it's not something that's easily trained. You know, people don't, don't spend time thinking about their, you know, how their inner being is feeling about things at the moment. And it's something that I think people should spend a lot more time doing. And of course, we see this, I guess, this new generation of, you know, fund researchers, fund analysts coming, coming through. And I kind of felt I was, I was part of the, what I might describe as the, as the second wave. We had the, the pioneers, including your good self. And, and, and as you said, I had, there was probably about a dozen multi-managers that I could identify with and, you know, try to learn from. Whereas obviously now the, the profession is much more proliferated. There's far more, you know, kicking around. Perhaps a little bit harder for young fund selectors to, to, to identify with, um, other fund selectors quite in the same way, you know, who to, who to learn from. But going into the pandemic, that, I guess, that pressure to move towards quant-only approaches was already on the rise. The pandemic obviously just gave, you know, further fuel to that. I, I'm sensing that you do not like quant-only approaches to fund selection. No, indeed not. Um, I think quant is a very useful tool. It's a, it's a very useful screen. In fact, in the... Uh, Early days of uh, Albemarle Street Partners, which uh, I set up, I co-founded only 10 years ago now with uh, Dan Kemp and Sam Little. We, oh, Dan had something which we, it was, a, it was a fun selection tool, but it was purely quant-based. Um, and that, you know, it, it worked very well. Uh, but it, it was a starting point. It said, look at these funds. Um, and then you go away and do due diligence on them. But actually, just having a chip, you know, there are so many, there are so, you know, there are so many factors you could put into a into a spreadsheet. And say, right, rank all those, give me a number. I'll, I'll go and see the I'll go and see the top ten funds. Sure. So then, as a, I guess, as a, if you don't mind me describing you as a as a humanist, um, where do you see therefore? the incursion of technology, machine learning, is that an opportunity for greater purpose within asset management? Is it an opportunity for better decision-making to remove perhaps some of the worst of, of the human condition? Or is it frankly just a threat to the, you know, to the human aspect of uh, fund selection? It's, it's, a, it's a threat. It's a huge threat. It's shiny pill, make it better. I've got a computer that you press this button and it gives you the answer. Um, don't need you anymore, go away. Now, that's not a, not a world I want to live in. You know, if we spent time actually looking at the investment decisions we have made that haven't worked and the ones that have worked and reflect on those, you know, genuinely go inside yourself and reflect on those. You know, what, what's actually worked here? What hasn't worked here? What, what, what can I learn from this? That's far more important than, 
you know, having a having a machine that will do the work for you. If if you like, you know, we're seeing, you know, the, the machine at the moment. Uh, one of the machines is is index tracking, um, and you know, the machine says, you know, here are hundred stocks in the FTSE, and I'm going to own all of them in in this percentage. And every day you press a button, and it says, I've got to buy some of these, sell some of those. And of course, you can buy trackers if you're a big enough institutional. If you can buy some trackers for, for zero cost, and of course, you know when when the you know the vast majority, well, not the vast majority, but certainly a majority of active managers don't actually outperform trackers, then you've got a problem, and that's a problem at the moment because the trackers are buying the large cap stocks, and particularly in the states, if you don't have the five five or six fangs in their weightings in the in the index, you can underperform. Um, so it's a sort of self-fulfilling, self-fulfilling prophecy. But I, I don't, I don't, you know, I, I'm, a, I'm a great fan of active management. I mean, that's, you know, that's, that's a big, that's a central part of our job. We're going looking at active managers, um, and there are active managers who do work on a pretty consistent basis. Again, they're, you know, different factors, different managers. You know, who's going to perform in a growth environment, a value environment, um, maybe even an ESG environment. Um, but I, no, I, I, I think. I, Again, technology is useful, but not not to you know total reliance on it. And then, of course, at the extreme opposite end, you know, when we're thinking about that human condition, um, you know, Bernie Bernie Madoff obviously just recently passed, and that was you know frankly one of the poorer episodes in asset management's history. Um, my worry, my worry is, I, I wonder if there are times this element of nihilism in, in finance that. These things seem to just come and go, and, and and finance as an industry, we sort of shrug it off and said, well, they were a bad egg, therefore, you know, we we don't need to worry about that. We don't need to necessarily learn from that. And you know, without us getting in, embroiled too embroiled into uh, into Nietzsche, I think that when you see some of the things that we see, you talked there about you know the ramping scale scaling up of indexation, we see. Reddit board rebellions, we see social media generally just, you know, th- this idea of, you know, uh, Instagram influencers and, and investments, TikTok investing. I mean, bizarre stuff, you know, feels very alien, alien to me and probably feels very alien to, to any of us, you know, even just 10 years ago. Big tech, big data, asset concentration, Bitcoin at valuations. Yeah, exactly. Over capitalized over $1 trillion, non fungible tokens. I mean, systematic trading. I mean, so so many things. I mean, don't, don't you get technical with me? Well, I'm just, I'm, I'm just, <laughs> I'm, I'm just worried as human beings. I mean, where where do we go from here? I mean, where is there still room for optimism left for us as as, as an industry? Then you know, the fact that you can write off you know a five billion fine gives you an idea of how much money is being made on the other side. So I, I, I would be very surprised if things like this don't don't keep happening. I mean, we just had the the Arch Egos um, hedge fund blow up spectacularly, and uh, one of the banks involved, Credit Suisse, you know, they have you know heads have rolled, CEOs gone, head of compliance has gone, um, head of risk has gone, um, as it should be. You know, they 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 dropped four billion. I mean, Credit Suisse, you know, they're the Switzerland's answer to Deutsche Bank. But you know, not not in America. You know, the American banks, you know, they, they sort of sail on quite happily, breaking the law. And um, you've got to remember that they they own the Fed basically. So, you know, they own the regulator. It's it's quite it's quite extraordinary. It's funny you're making comparisons to Deutsche Bank. I was just thinking there for a second. I was trying to think which side would actually be most affronted. <laughs> 
Well, yeah, I, I, yeah, that's um, that's 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 a good point. Um, but I, yeah, they've. I, I think that. Well, I mean, the European the European banks are. You know, they've they've never recapitalized. Um, not to the same extent that the US banks have. Um, so that you know, they're always you know they're on the back foot most of the time. But they're you see they then have to go out and you know like Credit Suisse, they have to join the club. They have to take the risk to make the money. If, if this. If this, this thing hadn't blown up, they'd have, you know, they made, you know, decent return on the investment, but it's gone horribly wrong because they've taken too much risk. And I've, I was listening to one of your earlier podcasts, I think it was one last week, um, when, when guys making the comment that, you know, people are just blase about risk now. Um, you know, because the Fed are going to be there, they'll look after you, you know, don't worry about it. Um, but when you have all these bubbles blowing up at the same time, um, you know, Bitcoin's having an interesting uh, run at the moment. You know, it was sixty-two thousand bucks a piece a week or so ago. It's it's forty-eight at the moment. No, forty-eight and a half. Um, NFTs, non-fungible tokens. I mean, how crazy! You know, you you create a bit of you create a bit of uh, modern art, convert it into a PDF, and then sell it for sixty-two million dollars. Uh, and I've got a copy of it on my computer. I haven't paid sixty-two million for it, but I mean, I just don't get it. I really don't get it. Spacs are another thing, you know. They they all of a sudden they've you know they've been found wanting as well. So I think a lot of these, um, you know, a lot of these sort of uh, end, kind of like end of market bubbles. You always get these weird things, you know. Not that long ago, I think in the sort of two thousands, it was um, vintage cars. Um, you know, vintage car funds were being were being sold to people, um, and you've got a lot of people now selling, um, you know, wine funds. I, I, I see that the uh, frost has decimated a large part of the French vineyards. Um, so maybe, maybe having been in a wine fund up until now has probably been quite good, given that prices aren't going to go down a lot. One last question, I think, and it just brings us all together. This idea of, I guess, mindfulness, um, your philosophy, knowing what you know now, would you do it all over again? Or would you do something different? Would you just get back on your motorcycle and just ride around the world again? Very tempting to do the latter. <laughs> um, that's not an easy question. I think I probably, I would say yes. I mean, I had, I would say I started in this industry in 1979. Um, and this was before any regulation. And I have to tell you, it was fun. Um, everybody had fun. Um in all sorts of ways, um, there were bandits, um, but generally speaking, you know, you could if you couldn't see them coming, then you really weren't doing your job properly. Then we had regulation, and it started getting worse. We had the eighty-seven crash, um, and then we had a sort of honeymoon period into two thousand, if you like. Um, and I think if I were if I were to go through it all again, I think I would say I would have probably packed it all in, you know, in the run up to two thousand. Um, because it was becoming very obvious what was what was happening. I'll, I'll never forget um, going to a BGI uh, presentation where they explained the Eiffel Tower effect, and they this was before the the, the TMT crash, and they were showing charts of stocks that just went up and up and up and up right up to a point, and it just looked like the left hand side of the Eiffel Tower, and then they draw the opposite side, and they said, they said and this is what's coming. And a lot of people, you know, they just laughed. But that's exactly what happened. And I think, um, you know, you know, the, 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 the Eiffel Tower effect in two thousand was quite a 
was quite an eye-opener for me. I'd, I'd have packed it in then because I'd learnt a lot by that stage. And in fact, I'm, I don't do as, you know, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not retired, not by a long way. I still have three or four consultancy clients, but I'm beginning to look at you know, offering my services as a life guide to people because I have experience not just in investments, but in, you know, in, in life itself. And, you know, this whole question of mindfulness and getting into, you know, understanding who you are. And that works in a business as well as in your personal life. So, yeah, I, I'd probably start again, but I'd be mindful of the fact that, you know, there'll be a point where I would want to change direction. So that just leaves us, as I say, the uh, 10 question rapid fire round, uh, Clive. I'm afraid I do have to subject you to it. It's, um, I, I even hear that some guests actually enjoy it, so uh, I, I hope you do too. <laughs> um, if you're ready, we shall begin. Yeah, go. Question one. Bull or bear? Bear. <laughs> I think you're the first bear answer, which is which is great. There we go. Uh, question two. Bogle Buffett. Ooh, Buffett. Question three. Profit or planet? Planet. Question four. Divest or engage? Engage. Question five. Lower cost or better value? Better value. Question six. Super tankers or boutiques? Boutiques. Question seven. Star managers or team players? <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, team players. Yeah, I, could, I did let Moosey off last, uh, last week, so I'm afraid I couldn't, uh, can't let you off either, so thanks. Question eight. Public or private? Mm-hmm. Private. Question nine. High growth or stable income? Stable income. And question ten, my favourite is, as all the listeners know, socialism or free markets? What do you think? <laughs> free markets. <laughs> oh, if only if only we had free markets. Yeah, I mean, it's funny you talk about Hermes and, of course, that different, I guess, uh, heritage of form of capitalism, you know, going back to, you know, David Pitt Watson. That just leaves the bonus round, Clive. And if you could pick a number for me between 11 and 40. 11 and 40. Um, 21. Uh, question 21 has been taken. Could you roll the dice again? 34. Uh, past or future? Future. That's quite an apt question, I think, for the for this episode. Intri- intriguingly, bear, um, bull or bear. My my wife calls me bear. Um, and done, and uh, yeah, she just doesn't say Clive. In fact, quite a lot of people know me as bear. So, so maybe that my my knee-jerk response to bear was, well, that's who I am. Um, but I I think the valuation levels at the moment are heroic. Yeah, this could go on for some time because of the, you know. I don't know how many trillions are arriving any day now from the States, but we shall see. Yeah, it doesn't seem to be about actually right now who is right or wrong. Albeit sometimes the circumstances change, we have been here before. Yeah, um, you know, same, you know, we're, we're prone to make the same mistakes. I mean, I always you know, I make the observation that you know, having been in the industry for 40 years, I've seen pretty much everything. Um, but we've got people in the industry now who are, you know, getting on to being veterans. Um, who joined the joined the club in 2008-2009. So yep. they've pretty much yep. only ever seen a market going one way. And interest rates ditto. Um, and nobody, of course, has a foggiest idea what inflation looks like. Um, when I started in this industry, inflation was in double digits. The 
but higher shielding guilt was treasury 17% nominal. Um, and people, I say that to people today, and they say, what, what were you smoking back in the 70s? I'm not, <laughs> I'm not sure I'm not sure I'll make the final cut, but we'll see how we no, go. No, probably on. not. Probably not. Look, Clyde, uh, just uh, just to say a big thanks for, for joining the show. Uh, you, have, you have survived the refund order. As ever, you bring your own very unique view, I think, of, of our industry. I just want you, to say a big thanks for that. By the way, you can't say very unique. It's either unique or isn't. Good point. Sorry, it's well. one of, I'm, I'm a pedant. I, I, it's, one, <laughs> it's the one thing... It's the one thing, in, in, you know, if anyone says it's really unique, I like, fuck it, it isn't. <laughs> Sorry. Please don't forget to like and share and subscribe. You know, click the subscribe button. A new podcast every two weeks with a new guest. Stay tuned. Big thanks to you, dear listener, for tuning in. Brought to you by my sponsor, Allianz Global Investors. And my warm thanks to today's guest. Legally, I am compelled to remind everyone that all views of this podcast are, of course, independent and do not belong to any affiliation or organisation. Just in case that was in any doubt. Tune in for the next podcast every two weeks from The New Fund Please subscribe, share, like and comment. Let me know what you think and what you'd like covered in future episodes. Until then, stay safe and keep it left field. Thousands are being drawn into this nightmare world of the hippies and become zombie-like vegetables. This is one fad that doesn't end tomorrow. These kids are hooked, most of them to stay and thousands more are being taken in. It's your children who are the pawns in the game, and the solution is your responsibility, or even remain free.